0: Thank you for joining me for another Relaxing Literature podcast. If you've only been following Frankenstein and not my other uh, books, then this will be the first time you're hearing my new microphone. So please um, find me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature, and let me know if you find this to be an improvement or if you would prefer that I go back to just recording on my phone. Chapter 2 When I had attained the age of seventeen, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the University of Ingolstadt. I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought it necessary for the completion of my education that I should be made acquainted with other customs than those of my native country. My departure was therefore fixed at an early date, but before the day resolved upon could arrive, the first misfortune of my life occurred, an omen, as it were, of my future misery. Elizabeth had caught the scarlet fever, but her illness was not severe, and she quickly recovered. During her confinement, many arguments had been urged to persuade my mother to refrain from attending upon her. She had at first yielded to our entreaties but when she heard that her favorite was recovering, she could no longer debar herself from her society, and entered her chamber long before the danger of infection was past. The consequences of this imprudence were fatal. On the third day, my mother sickened. Her fever was very malignant, and the looks of her attendants prognosticated the worst event. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity of this admirable woman did not desert her, she joined the hands of Elizabeth and myself. My children, she said, my firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union. This expectation will now be the cons- consolation of your father. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to your younger cousins. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you and happy and beloved as I have been. it is not hard. To- is it not hard to quit you all? "'but these are not thoughts befitting me. "'I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death "'and will indulge a hope of meeting you in another world.' "'She died calmly, and her countenance expressed affection even in death. "'I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent "'by that most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul, "'and the despair that is exhibited on the countenance.' It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she, whom we saw every day, and whose very existence appeared a part of our own, can have departed forever, that the brightness of a beloved eye can have been extinguished, and the sound of a voice so familiar and dear to the ear can be hushed, never more to be heard. These are the reflections of the first days, but when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil, "'then the actual bitterness of grief commences. "'Yet from whom has not that rude hand "'rent away some dear connection? "'And why should I describe a sorrow "'which all have felt and must feel? "'The time at length arrives "'when grief is rather an indulgence than a necessity. "'The smile that plays upon the lips, "'although it may be deemed a sacrilege, "'is not banished. "'My mother was dead, "'but we still had duties which we ought to perform.' We must continue our course with the rest, and learn to think ourselves fortunate, whilst one remains whom the spoiler has not seized. My journey to Ingolstadt, which had been deferred by these events, was now again determined upon. I obtained from my father a respite of some weeks. This period was spent, sadly, my mother's death and my speedy departure, depressed our spirits. But Elizabeth endeavored to renew the spirit of cheerfulness in our little society. Since the death of her aunt, her mind had acquired new firmness and vigor. She determined to fulfill her duties with the greatest exactness, and she felt that most imperious duty of rendering her uncle and cousins happy had devolved upon her. She consoled me, amused her uncle, instructed my brothers, and I never beheld her so enchanting as at this time— when she was continually endeavoring to contribute to the happiness of others, entirely forgetful of herself. The day of my departure at length arrived. I had taken leave of all my friends, excepting Clairval, who spent the last evening with us. He bitterly lamented that he was unable to accompany me, but his father could not be persuaded to part with him, intending that he should become a partner with him in his business, in compliance with his favorite theory that learning was superfluous in the commerce of ordinary life. Henry had a refined mind, he had no desire to be idle, and was well pleased to become his father's partner, but he believed that a man might be a very good trader, and yet possess a cultivated understanding. We sat late, listening to his complaints, and making many little arrangements for the future. The next morning early, I departed. Tears gushed from the eyes of Elizabeth. They proceeded partly from sorrow at my departure, and partly because she reflected that the same journey was to have taken place three months before, when a mother's blessing would have accompanied me. I threw myself into the chase that was to convey me away, and indulged in the most melancholy reflections. I, who had ever been surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavoring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone. In the university, whither I was going, I must form my own hands and be my own protector. My life had hitherto been remarkably secluded and domestic, and this had given me invincible repugnance to new countenances. I loved my brothers, Elizabeth and Clerval. These were old familiar faces, but I believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. Such were my reflections as I commenced my journey. But as I proceeded, my spirits and hopes rose, I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge I had often, when at home, thought it hard to remain during my youth cooped up in one place, and had longed to enter the world and to take my station among other human beings. Now my desires were complied with, and it would indeed have been folly to repent. I had sufficient leisure for these and many other reflections during my journey to Ingolstadt, which was long and fatiguing. At length the high white steeple of the town met my eyes. I alighted and was conducted to my solitary apartment to spend the evening as I pleased. The next morning I delivered my letters of introduction and paid a visit to some of the principal professors, and among others to M. Krimp, Professor of Natural Philosophy. He received me with politeness and asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I mentioned it is true, with fear and trembling, the only authors I had ever read upon those subjects. The professor stared. Have you, he said, really spent your time studying such nonsense? I replied in the affirmative. Every minute continued M. Crimp with warmth. Every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what desert land have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies, which you have so greedily imbibed, are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected, in this enlightened and scientific age, to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus, and Paracelsus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. So saying, he stepped aside and wrote down a list of several books treating of natural philosophy, which he desired me to procure, and dismissed me after mentioning that in the beginning of the following week he intended to commence a course of lectures upon natural philosophy in its general relations, and that M. Waldman, a fellow professor, "'would lecture upon chemistry the alternate days that he missed. "'I returned home, not disappointed, "'for I had long considered those authors useless "'whom the professor had so strongly reprobated. "'But I did not feel much inclined to study the books "'which I procured at his recommendation. M. Cramp was a little squat man, "'with a gruff voice and repulsive countenance. "'The teacher, therefore, did not repossess me, "'did not prepossess me in favor of his doctrine.' Besides, I had contempt for the uses of modern natural philosophy. It was very different. When the masters of the science sought immortality and power, such views, although futile, were grand, but now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur Realities of little worth. Such were my reflections during the first two or three days spent almost in solitude. But as the ensuing week commenced, I thought of the information which M. Kremp had given me concerning the lectures, and although I could not consent to go and hear that little conceited fellow deliver sentences out of a pulpit, I recollected what he had said of M. Waldman, whom I had never seen as he had hitherto been out of town. Partly from curiosity and partly from idleness, I went into the lecturing room, which M. Waldman Waldman entered shortly after. This professor was very unlike his colleague. He appeared about fifty years of age, but with an aspect aggressive of the greatest benevolence, and few gray hairs covered his temples, but those at the back of his head were nearly black. His person was short, but remarkably erect, and his voice the sweetest I had ever heard. He began his lecture by a recapitulation of the history of chemistry and the various improvements made by different men of learning, pronouncing with fervor the names of the most distinguished discoverers. He then took a cursory view of the present state of the science and explained many of its elementary terms. After having made a few preparatory experiments he concluded with a panegyric he concluded with a panegyric upon modern chemistry the terms of which I shall never forget the ancient teachers of this science he said promised impossibilities and performed nothing the modern masters promise very little they know that metals cannot be transmuted and that the elixir of life is a chimera but these, but these philosophers, whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt, and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible, have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature, and shew how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates, and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers, They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. I departed highly pleased with the professor and his lecture, and paid him a visit the same evening. His manners in private were even more mild and attractive than in public, for there was a certain dignity in his mien during his lecture which in his own house was replaced by the greatest affability and kindness. He heard with attention my little narration concerning my studies, and smiled at the names of Cornelius, Agrippa, and Paracelsus, but without without the contempt that M. Cramp had exhibited. He said that these men, to whose indefatigable zeal modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of their knowledge, they had left us, as an easier task, to give new names and arrange in connected classifications the facts which they, in a great degree, had been the instruments of bringing to light. The labors of men and genius, however erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind. I listened to his statement, which was delivered without any presumption or affectation, and then added that his lecture had removed my prejudices against modern chemists, and I, at the same time, "'requested his advice concerning the books I ought to procure. "'I am happy,' said M. Waldman, "'to have gained a disciple, "'and if your application equals your ability, "'I have no doubt of your success. "'Chemistry is that branch of natural philosophy "'in which the greatest improvements have been and may be made. "'It is on that account that I have made it my peculiar study, "'but at the same time I have not neglected the other branches of science.' a man would make but a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If your wish is to become really a man of science and not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply to every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics. He then took me into his laboratory and explained to me the uses of his various machines, instructing me as to what I ought to procure and promising me the use of his own, when I should have advanced far enough in the science not to derange their mechanism. He also gave me the list of books which I had requested, and I took my leave. Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future, destiny. Chapter 3 from this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, in most in the most comprehensive sense of the term, became nearly my sole occupation. I read with ardor those works so full of genius and discrimination which modern inquirers have written on these subjects. I attended the lectures and cultivated the acquaintance of the men of science at the university, and I found even in M. Kremp a great deal of sound sense and real information, "'combined, it is true, with a repulsive physiognomy and manners, "'but not on that account the less valuable. "'In M. Waldman I found a true friend. "'His gentleness was never tinged by dogmatism, "'and his instructions were given with an air of frankness and good nature "'that banished every idea of pedantry. "'It was perhaps the amiable character of this man "'that inclined me more to that branch of natural philosophy which he possessed Than an intrinsic love for the science itself. But this state of mind had place only in the first steps toward knowledge. The more fully I entered into the science, the more exclusively I pursued it for its own sake. That application, which at first had been a matter of duty and resolution, now became so ardent and eager that the stars often disappeared in the light of the morning whilst I was yet engaged in my laboratory. As I applied so closely... It may be easily conceived that I improved rapidly. My ardor was indeed the astonishment of the students, and my proficiency that of the masters. Professor Cramp often asked me, with a sly smile, how Cornelius Agrippa went on, whilst M. Waldman expressed the most heartfelt exultation in my progress. Two years passed in this manner, during which I paid no visit to Geneva, but was engaged heart and soul in the pursuit of some discoveries which I hoped to make. None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies you go as far as others have gone before you, and there is nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit there is continual food for discovery and wonder. A mind of moderate capacity which closely pursues one study must infallibly arrive at great proficiency in that study, and I, who continually sought the attainment of one object of pursuit— was solely wrapped up in this, improved so rapidly that, at the end of two years, I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments, which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university. When I had arrived at this point, and had become as well acquainted with the theory and practice of natural philosophy as depended on the lessons of the professors at Ingolstadt, my residence there, being no longer conducive to my improvements I thought of returning to my friends and to my native town when an incident happened that protracted my stay. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? I revolved these circumstances in my mind and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which relate to physiology. Unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm, my application to this study would have been irksome and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at tale of superstition, or to have feared the apparition of a spirit darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, has become food for the worm. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel-houses. My attention was fixed upon every object the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death, and death to life, until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius, who had directed their inquiries toward the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than, which, than that which I now affirm is true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life, nay, more. I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my, tols, of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study of des- and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp. not that, like a magical scene, it all opened upon me at once, the information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavors so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search, than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead, and found a passage to life aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted, that cannot be. Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon the subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent, as I then was, to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts. At least by my example how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow when i found so astonishing a power placed within my hands i hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which i should employ it although i possessed the capacity of bestowing animation yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies and fibers, muscles, muscles and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of being like myself, or one of simpler organization, but my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt of my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet, when I considered the improvements which every day takes place in science and mechanics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts but at least lay the foundations of future, future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say, about eight feet in height, and proportionately large. After having formed this determination, and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onward, like a hurricane, in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, although I now found it impossible... Renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. These thoughts supported my spirits, while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardor. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed, yet I still clung to the hope which the next day or next hour might realize— One secret, which I alone possessed, was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labors, while, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding-places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil, as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? My limbs now tremble, and my eyes swim with the remembrance, but then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seemed to have lost all soil or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness. As soon as the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habit. Collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse house furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation, whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to the conclusion. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged heart and soul in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season, never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest, or the vines yield a more luxurious vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature, and the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you you must pardon me if i regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected i knew well therefore that would be my father's feelings but i could not tear my thoughts from my employment loathsome in itself but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination i wished as it were to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object which swallowed up every habit of my nature should be completed. I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, but I am now conceived that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame a human being, in perfection, ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never to allow passion or transistory desire to disturb his tranquillity. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your "'Looks remind me to proceed.' "'My father made no reproach in his letters, "'and only took notice of my silence "'by inquiring into my occupations "'more particularly than before. "'Winter, spring, and summer passed away "'during my labours, "'but I did not watch the blossom "'or the expanding leaves, "'sight which before me always yielded "'a supreme delight. "'So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation. "'The leaves of that year had withered "'before my work drew near to a close,' and now every day she would be more plainly how well I had succeeded. But my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favorite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree, a disease that I regretted the more because I had hitherto enjoyed most excellent health and I had always boasted of the firmness of my nerves. But I believed that exercise and amusement would soon drive away such symptoms, and I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. Thank you for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, chapters two and three. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please consider donating to help me improve the quality of them. And please find me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature to leave your questions, comments, or suggestions of books that you would like for me to read in the future.